Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. My guest today is Alan Chilton. As head of fund capital markets at Patrizia, a global real assets manager with over 47 billion of real estate globally, Alan is responsible for all discretionary and non-discretionary funds. Alan and his international team ensures each fund is fit for purpose, including strategy, regulation, and marketing plan for each region around the world. So welcome, Alan. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. How are you doing? Pleasure. Yeah, very good. Thanks, Ed. Just to start with, I guess, can we get a bit of background about you? I'm sure a lot of our listeners are interested in the path that someone might take to get to your position in, in, in such a big business, and also maybe a bit of background about Patricia and, and what it is that they're doing. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I was lucky enough to have a, another career in, in professional sport, professional rugby, where some of my, my best friends and, and best memories uh, still come from. But what that meant was sort of a, a mid-twenties realising that you weren't quite as good as you needed to be or doors weren't quite open in the way you wanted them to, that uh, rugby had a, a sort of uh, a life uh, that was coming to an end and what was I going to do afterwards. So real estate was something that had always um, interested me and uh, I'd, I'd always loved the thought of, of, um, uh, of owning some, some great big grand towers in, in New York. Some will say along the lines of Donald Trump, but I'll, I'll let others to, uh, to, to comment on that. Um, but you know, I, uh, I, I very much wanted to get into real estate and the question was how. And um, the, the easier way for me, it seemed like, was to go off and do a, an MBA. So I did that at uh, London Business School. I was very conscious of, of um, going to a place where brand was key and would open doors to some of the big, uh, big real estate investors globally who, if I just turned up without the MBA, I wouldn't stand a chance really, given you'd had many others who had gone through the RICS and the, the surveying uh, channels. So it, it worked quite well. Uh, I got into London Business School. I did a six-month placement exchange in, in New York Stern, focused just on, on real estate as well, which was amazing. Uh, and then the aftermath of the global financial crisis hit, and basically real estate investment banking teams went from 40 people down to three overnight, and my plan was, uh, was up in smoke, basically. So I was lucky enough to be in the recruitment process and, and get a couple of offers from the big investment banks at this stage who then sort of pivoted to say, well, look, the real estate specialty that you wanted is not quite an option, but we would love to sort of have you as a more of a generalist. So I ended up going to uh, Credit Suisse for a, for a couple of years post-MBA, um, which was a, you know, a, a great brand to, to have on the CV and some, some really uh, good contacts and learning in the early days as, as you sort of establish yourself in a, in a new career. And uh, from there, I, I then got a couple of phone calls from people who I was speaking to during the MBA who alluded to uh, the real estate market picking up again in sort of 2011 and would I be interested in, in coming back to have a look at that space. I jumped at the opportunity and joined a, um, a privately owned uh, real estate private equity firm that then got uh, acquired by a German listing business Patrizia and, and this is where I sit today in, in the role of uh, head of fund capital markets 
who are Patrizia? Patrizia are, uh, we aim to be the, the leading uh, manager of choice for, for real assets globally. Uh, we have 46, 47 billion in, uh, in real assets at the moment. The majority of that is in European real estate and equity only. So we're very much a, a, a major player in the real estate space. Uh, we're one of the largest owners, top, top 10 owners of real estate in, in Europe. We're sort of top five in residential assets. Um, and we're one of the largest value add investors in, in Europe. Uh, we have 900 people across 24 offices. Um, and in the residential space, we have 200 people just focused on residential and, and about 13 billion in, in that space. So it's um, quite sizable uh, market for us. Definitely, yeah, huge, huge, huge market, really. And um, really fascinating to hear your journey. And I think a lot of people will be will be quite interested. The, the bit I picked up from that was talking about the brand of these uh, businesses that you wanted to get involved in. Um, and obviously, a lot of people, like you said, will go through the traditional channels of RICs and, um, and maybe their sort of land economy degrees and things like that. So it was interesting to see how that um, MBA worked for you. And clearly, it was... Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you didn't pick up on the brand of Trump then, because that would be my <laughs> but, um, but yeah, you know, and, and it's something that, uh, you know, I was one of the early uh, movers into real estate from an MBA. You know, in the, in the US, it's a very common path into, into the, the institutional real estate market. But in Europe, it was still quite uh, nascent at, at that time. Now, there's more and more people in that space. And actually, I, I act as a bit of a, a mentor advisor to some people looking to do exactly that transition from sporting via MBA into, into sectors such as real estate. So for me, it was it was the perfect move, and I wouldn't be here today with without doing that. Brilliant. And, and how do you find um, New York compared to the UK in terms of the real estate industry? So the real estate industry was really sort of a, a steep learning curve for for me in terms of how some markets operate differently. Uh, you know, I was very wet behind the ears still at that stage in terms of global real estate so I was just a sponge sort of absorbing all of it in and uh, you know some of the modules that we had were, were pretty cool you know you were sort of given a, uh, a fantasy checkbook and you had to go out and, and buy your own Manhattan real estate and, and provide a business plan for it so you know it was really some some cool stuff to do it's a great moment in in my my life and to be six months in New York as a, as a, a Brit is, is a good place as, as well to be. I can imagine. I, I've got a wife from California, so I, I, I bet you had a lot of fun. <laughs> so in terms of um, the market at the moment, then, there seems to be a real shift from residential property investments from an institutional level, starting to be seen much more as long-term income in the UK at the moment. Previously, in sort of a, a traditional portfolio, you might have had your Retail and office being seen as your bond-like type of asset because it's steady and low risk and, um, and, and got long-term leases and all that sort of stuff. And it seems that residential is starting to kind of come into that line, whereas previously it's been seen as a bit more of an alternative. Would you agree with that? And, um, and, if, so, and if not, why not? And Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, that's that's. A Exactly, um, you, know, you hit the nail on the head there. That's exactly what we're seeing, and that's what our our plans and future growth strategy is, is built on. Uh, you know, if you look in the the seventies, a lot of investors were underweight 
sorry, so back in the 70s, people were big investors in residential in the UK, pension world especially. But, you know, over the periods uh, and decades afterwards, they've now become underweight residential. And, you know, um, there's a couple of stats where 10 years ago, 10 billion of residential was transacted on per year. Now it's up to 60, 70 billion per year. So the growth has been, you know, really exponential in that space. And the question is, well, why? And I think you, you alluded to some really uh, interesting points around fixed income alternatives, and we can maybe touch on it later. But you know, you're seeing a lot of fixed income investors now looking at real estate and real assets and pension funds who, uh, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, could get all of their return requirements from fixed income, and now having to every year increase their allocation to real assets to try and meet the return requirements of their pensioners because uh, the fixed income is just not providing any returns at all. And that is effectively the, 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 the call we have made, that residential is a, is a great proxy for fixed income because you get a 250 to 300 basis points spread for the best uh, quality residential in Europe versus a, an average 10-year government bond. And we think that is pretty good value considering the resilience and robustness of the the income of the residential asset class and we've got data points going back 30 plus years that show during each crisis it's remained very resilient income is strong and even since the early 2000s residential has been the best performing asset class within real estate so it's outperformed the office and, and retail and logistics market so yeah we, we we're obviously big supporters of it and, and we think that is only going to continue and it's interesting what you said about residential being the best performing asset since, I think, the early 2000s. Is that looking at it on its own merits or with leverage? Because obviously when it's leveraged up, those, you, well, especially since the 2000s when rates have been down, you'd expect those returns to be even better. Um, yeah. so, so, so these are all sort of unleveraged figures I'm talking about markets. You know, obviously yeah. there will be pockets where residential has done less well and, 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 and vice versa. But, you know, it's, it's a residential in, in Europe is a bigger market than the U.S. Mm-hmm. by number of dwellings. Um, and the urbanization trend and the demographic uh, trend that's, that's driven from undersupply, not related. To sort of macroeconomics um, and the you know, COVID situation, for example, is a great example of, of how well it's performed. You know, during the COVID crisis, you you hear about some some pretty tough stories of, of uh, retailers not paying rent. You know, it's constantly in the news at the moment. Offices are people working from home. You know, what is the new norm? Uh, you know, residential people are still needed at home and actually now spending more time and. and money on their home so are actually paying their rents more reliably than they were pre-covid so it's proven to be very robust and very resilient and you mentioned also that you're looking at the um, higher end great areas and they've been uh, resilient whereas maybe some of those lower end if you still i mean looking at the uk for example back before the great financial crisis there's still areas that are below the values that they were at, at that point but Again, look at somewhere like London and house prices actually only dropped by, I think it was 2%, whereas the values, um, valuations were, were slightly different. But it just shows how the different types of markets, even within a country, can differ depending on the value, I suppose, and, and the quality of, yeah. of those assets. Do, do you find... 
you find that across the board or is it specific yeah. to general markets? Or? No, no, I think you're spot on again. You know, that's why we have 200 people you know, looking at residential across Europe because it is so granular. You know, you, you lay on regulations that are sort of coming in different countries as, as well and, and that becomes even more apparent. You know, even in those cases of, of parts of the UK where capital values may not have recovered post-GFC, uh, I'm, I'm pretty certain that the rental uh, yield would have you know, grown considerably in, in those places. And, and we see you know, year-on-year growth of, of sort of you know, 10% in, in some of these, these markets. So um, you know, obviously that going forward is, is unlikely to continue and it's going to stabilize and, and, and such. But you know, it's been a very, very sort of positive message, even in some of those less performing capital areas, um, for, for sure. Absolutely. And obviously you said you, you are one of the top five sort of uh, players when it comes to residential asset classes. So residential has always been seen as, as an alternative, whereas we've said now it's becoming less alternative. What are some examples of some of the alternative residential asset classes, such as kind of the student living and things like that? Yeah. Do you want to just run through a few of those for us? Yeah. So you, you've got, uh, you know, it's basically sort of on a on a age age line, I suppose. So you take, you know, your uh, student living as your, as your first option, and then you've got your uh, co living, where where people come out of, of halls or digs and, and want, you know, to be in a big city, but maybe can't afford a one bed on their own, so so share with others. You know, those examples are more established in the UK than they are in in, in Europe. Although Europe is is catching up in in that student space. Co-living is, is still a niche and we think you know, there are questions around that space post-COVID world. You know, do you want to be sharing bathrooms, kitchens with, with five or six people who you don't necessarily know, know too well? Maybe not, um, but a version of co-living might evolve and, and come through quite, quite well. So we, we monitor that space uh, as well. Then you've got your traditional um, you know, residential multifamily, as they call it in the States, whether that's a one, two, three bedroom flat downtown in, in some of the big cities or whether that is a, uh, you know, a, a two bed house in, in the suburbs. You know, it, it varies, but traditional uh, housing. And then you move, move into the um, age appropriate living. Uh, some may call that senior living, but then senior living sort of uh, crosses over um, both age-appropriate living with no healthcare associated with that, and then sort of your your sort of um, uh, assisted living, which is much more the, the healthcare model in in the UK, and then you go on to your sort of final stage of life, sort of um, much more active health uh, care uh, providers as as well for, for the latter stage. So you know we we really sit across the, the spectrum, and we will look at different opportunities and different risk profiles in. In, in all of those areas, um, the key for us is focusing on what we call a middle income bracket. So, you know, we're not looking at the, the high end or, or the real low end in, in, in some cases. We're looking at the largest section of, of the market, which is the middle income, where there's the greatest undersupply of, of, of homes. Very interesting. And um, in terms of that middle income range, then, where does affordable fit into this? Because I know just from a previous conversation we've had, the term affordable is, is, means different things in different countries where you operate. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think you know, that's a, 
a sort of um, first question to a question is what do you define as affordable? Because you know, affordable in, in the UK is, is different to affordable in France, for example. In, in France, it's much more social, uh, whereas in the UK, it's, I think, seen much more as a, um, you know, a key worker type um, product. Uh, whereas I think you know, it's generally accepted now that affordable across these different markets means circa 25 to 30% of your net income is spent on, on the home or the, the rent of, of the home, if, if you like. Um, and obviously, as a result, you know, there are some cities that will play um, to, to that much easier and better than, than others. Um, and it's the same in the, the, the sort of senior living space, not just the traditional space. You know, some of the younger cities will provide product that is more suitable to the, to the younger population. Some of the older cities, because the demographic has, has evolved, provide opportunity in that more age-appropriate living, as I mentioned. That's interesting, because I, when I look at affordability, just for, for the things that I'm doing, I'll look at it in um, two different ways. So it will be upfront costs as a um, sort of multiplier of someone's uh, annual income. And then secondary will be servicing costs, so mortgage costs as a percentage of their income. And what I find is in the higher value areas, so London, that, that second bracket of um, servicing costs will will go up to around 50%. And I always felt that it was higher than, say, the rest of the UK, which might be around 30%, because the values are higher. And your other staples of living, such as food, travel, the internet, these things, remain kind of constant throughout, throughout the country. Are you saying, actually, there's another factor in there as well, which is the demographic and that that could have something to do with age, the age of people in that area, maybe because they have less servicing costs because their mortgages might not be as big, I don't know. But do you think that might be a factor too? Yeah, yeah definitely. I, you know, I think the, the, the figures I talk about in terms of percentage of, of your salary is, is based on the rental model. That's where we're looking at. So in your example there, you know, you're very much looking at that servicing cost. Yes. You know? So it's a servicing cost of paying your rent. Well, as you quite correctly alluded to, you know, in some of the bigger cities, that's going to be up to 50% and beyond. You know, we, we classify the cities via four buckets, and, and they're basically powerful, afford, affordable, innovative. Um, and you know, the, the powerful ones are the ones where you, know, you expect your London, Munich, Paris, where you're going to have to spend 50% or, or more of your, your disposable income. In some of the innovative or affordable or liquid cities, uh, you know, they might be so in an innovative city or somewhere like a, uh, a Cambridge or an Oxford where, you know, there's a big research and a big university angle to it. So you, you probably don't spend 50%, but, you know, you might be able to get some greater growth uh, in, in your rent. In the affordable side, you know, you are um, looking more sort of in that mid-market segment of 35 to 40%. You know, so maybe a, uh, I don't know, maybe a, a Birmingham type scenario maybe uh, and then you've got your liquid cities which in the UK market is, is most difficult at the moment because there isn't this built stock to, to transact for institutional buyers so most of our uh, you know liquid cities we look at are actually German cities because they've got the longest sort of track record as a country of producing sort of rental stock if you like um, so as a result is an institutional market as well there. Is that because they're building more and the kind of 
there's less red tape to actually develop or, or is it just that they've got enough stock for enough supply to meet demand so that it's a bit more liquid? Well, I think they didn't go through that. Um, you know, obviously they had experience post uh, the, the sort of world wars of, of you know wanting to provide stock that was appropriate for the for the the people of that country yeah. and as a result the institutions like in Britain you know in, in the 70s institutions were buy-in and then obviously the change of the Thatcher government led to a, a, a sort of withdrawal of the institutional uh, investment and that hasn't come back until arguably now and as a result we've built less properties because of the scale needed from the institutional investors who can make markets whereas in Germany those institutional investors have remained from the 70s onwards so they've constantly invested and residential has been part of their portfolio for, for many many years it's only now in the UK that we're trying to play catch up and the interesting bit in the UK is some investors are sat on the sidelines waiting for this stock to be developed by the, the sort of innovators in, in, the, in the segment who are funding these developers. Well, actually, most of those investors are pension funds who have no intention of selling their stock. So, you know, the question is, how long do some of these people sat on the sidelines going to have to wait for stock to become of institutional size for them to buy? Um, you know, I think that's going to be an interesting one to watch uh, over, over time. That's really, really interesting because before we press record today, we were just chatting about some of the differences between sort of direct and indirect uh, investments in terms of the funds and, and how big the institutional, sort of how the differences in institutional investing. And one of the terms that came up, which you just mentioned there, was um, being able to make markets rather than just operate in them. With that in mind then, how do you feel that institutional investors, or how, how do institutional investors maybe feel about the time it takes to get returns from some of these assets, such as the build-to-rent, the co-livings, where they are making essentially these markets, and sometimes from conception to actually getting the first lot of uh, return in, in their pockets, it can take some sometimes seven or eight years to get through the planning stage and all that sort of stuff. So, so how do how is their view maybe different to someone like myself that directly invests and yeah. does their own deals? So I think that's the the great thing about real estate is there are different pots of capital at every stage of that risk process and profile that you've talked about. So most of the pension funds are unlikely unless it's on their own doorstep to take planning risk. Mm-hmm. unless they have the, the land already. You know, some of the local authorities will do joint ventures with developers and, and sort of solve the, the problem that, that way. But most of the pension funds will wait until the developer has planning permission, the local authority has, has sort of agreed the scheme, and then they will fund it. And then for funding it, you know, during the construction phase, they will then uh, take some, it depends on the risk, but take some lease in risk, and they will expect then for that extra risk, a bit of extra return over and above the existing stock, uh, which you can buy. So, you know, for example, in Germany, you could buy uh, a ready, ready built, fully operational, 100% leased property that was built in the 70s or 80s, and you know, you would pay a, a lower yield than than something in in, in the UK or, or other parts of Germany at the moment that is being developed, where you've got to take that lease in risk. 
Mm-hmm. But you know, at every stage of those um, steps, you know, there is an opportunity for an individual or a developer or an institutional player to, to come into the, the equation and solve that, that funding issue and, and have the appropriate returns for, for their risk. So real estate is a bit like rugby in that there's a, a place for every different point. Yeah, maybe. I haven't thought of it like that. It's <laughs> definitely a, a place for a, for a fat prop and a, a skinny winger in, uh, in real estate, that's for sure. So what has changed to make more institutions increase their residential assets within their portfolio at the moment? Is it simply this sort of desperate chase of a yield uh, in terms of the fixed income that you came up, or is there something else? Well, I think it's the combination of the other asset classes and the search for yield, uh, and the fixed income scenario gave where you just don't get yield now and you need to provide your returns elsewhere. But then uh, I think the resilience of a sector like residential um, that is not correlated to maybe sort of equity markets and other asset classes, you know, um, because of the undersupply versus the, the, the sort of economic approach, that as, a, as well is obviously a huge, um, huge pull. So it's, it's a combination of diversity and the stability. And obviously you've, you've said that in Europe, the institutional residential market is, is, is much bigger than in the UK, but it's starting to come through now. What, what effect do you think that this institutional investment in residential is having on the on the private rental sector so traditionally it's always been sort of mom and pop landlords um what effect do you think that's having on 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 the prs in in the uk well i think you know europe again is is different countries are more advanced so germany's very advanced you know arguably france paris has, has got a good sort of segment others are developing it like the uk but i think the uk has the highest you know, owner-occupier characteristics of, of most of those countries across Europe. And we are seeing that, that decline in. So, um, you know, I think the, the, the governmental changes and the attitudes of the young renters are, are sort of, um, you know, demanding better stock. Now, whether you are a mom and pup or whether you are a, a big institutional investor, I, I still think there is space for both as long as you have the right product. And I think the, the problem we've had in the UK since I was in the 70s onwards is that the mom and pops have not really invested in uh, what we classify as capex into the property. You know, so even though we're taking X amount of rent off of a tenant, not all of the rent is going to our pensioners. You know, we are providing a sinking fund or you know, a, a constant maintenance program uh, and facility management and an inclusion and diversity programs on the social side for tenants. Well, actually, you know, I think historically the general feel of the mom and pop market has been that they haven't put anything back and they've only done repairs as needed, not to try and stay at the top of that, that rental market. So whether it's institutions or mom and pops, I, I, I think the quality of the product and the experience of the tenant is the key thing. And as long as you provide a good solution to that, you're going to do well either way. And do you think then that the, the I guess I, I would kind of, to term that is, is, is it's becoming more professionalized. So like you say, having the sinking fund and certainly other landlords that I know now, uh, especially since all the tax changes, it's right, you're either in this to do it properly yeah. um, or you're going to sell up and, and, and do something else. And, it, and that seems to be what's happened. So although the PRS isn't, isn't necessarily shrinking, the number of landlords definitely is and the amount of properties each landlord has 
is much more than it previously was, which kind of shows that that is, is taking shape. And it's just interesting, I think, that you, you mentioned it. It's kind of prevention rather than cure. It's, it's keep, keep main, not maintaining the properties, but keep ensuring that the experience of living there is going to be at the top of the market or the top of whichever market they're in. It could be that you're in low-end housing, but it's still got to be, got to be. Um, it's all relative, isn't it? And yeah, uh, whereas, whereas before you're saying it's 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 the maintaining things when they go wrong. So is that yeah. prevention? Yeah, no, I agree. And you know, in terms of the UK versus the other markets across Europe that you mentioned, you know, it's the same. The institutions versus the um, the the sort of buy-to-let landlords that you mentioned. There's there's demand for both. So you know especially post-COVID now, do people want to be in a 250-block apartment in the centre of town? You know, hopefully, because we, we own quite a few of those. But yeah, there's still, when we own that type of block, we then decide what level of amenities we, we want to put in there. So do we put a swimming pool? Do we put a gym? Do we put a cafe restaurant? In Germany, for example, and other parts of, of Europe, the amenities are much lower. You know, so you do literally just have your walk up three flights of stairs and you have your you know, traditional uh, apartment. Um, that's a cookie cutter of all the other apartments in, in that block. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the UK, we've, we've gone down the route of the more American version where it's higher amenities, you know, slightly different configurations of apartments um, and, and communal areas and, and lifts and, and foyers and lobbies, etc. question is now, post-pandemic, does... Uh, you know the the demand for a uh, you know a terraced house with three rooms that are, are let out you know with no uh, you know sort of amenities a swim pool etc that actually could be a an equally in demand product that um, you know there is enough demand for if you have the the right quality and the right price point. And what are some of the other kind of differences between the UK's PRS and and uh, or, or just rentals markets in general and the other European countries. So you've obviously mentioned some of the differences in amenities. I mean, the thing that jumps out to me is kind of regulation. I know people are very worried about things like rent controls and that sort of thing. What are your What are your thoughts on the different some of these differences that of some of these regulations that are already in some some other countries, and, and how do you feel that that affects the market? Yeah, you know, fascinating question because that that is a separate topic on its on itself. And yeah. you know, I think our general feeling is is regulation is um, something that effectively are the rules of the game. And the rules of the game can change, and you just have to adapt your strategy to the rules of the game, like any, like anything else. So in regulation, what history has, has shown is that and. Uh, and again, you know, parts of, of Germany show this better than the most is that they've had stringent regulation for many, many years and properties were not invested in because you couldn't grow the rent. So why would you put, you know, money into maintaining a property when you're going to get the same rent or, or not? Mm-hmm. So, you know, it needs to be very carefully thought of and it's not always the, the best solution. But, you know, they are the rules of the game and you play by the rules of the game. So if it does come you know you just have to be prepared for it and adapt accordingly i suppose it's barriers to entry as well isn't it and it it cuts out some of the competition maybe and allows you to to take up more market share 
Well, you know, from our point of view, you know, we we are constantly on top of regulation. We're sort of in many sort of government think tanks around regulation and whether it's a good or a, or a bad thing. We've obviously got our team on the ground in each one of the cities that I mentioned. So when regulation changes occur or are likely to occur, we're we're hopefully one of the first, if not the first, to 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 know. And then you just have to adapt accordingly. And you know, we've had examples of that in Berlin uh, in in the last year where we were. In the process of buying a large portfolio, rental regulations come in. Okay, well, you know, how do we tweak our our um, business plan to accommodate the rental regulations? Fine. Does it still work? Does it still give us the returns we require? Yes or no? And and we went ahead and we did that transaction. Um, you know, since then we've seen uh, the long-term investors still buying in, in Berlin, but some of the short-term investors who are in to make much quicker returns and, and take a bit more risk, staying out of it because of the uncertainty. So hopefully, you know, that market um, you know, still remains a, a positive one because it's, it's a great place to be. So sticking on regulation, many landlords in the UK are concerned about the abolition of uh, Section 21 or, or no-fault evictions. How do you feel from more of an institutional investor's point of view on, on that? You're going to have bad tenants, whether you have regulation and, and stringent measures or, or not. You're going to have good tenants. So, you know, the, the key for, for us as a landlord, and I think any landlord should be, as I said, to provide that service and, and level of hospitality, because that's effectively what you are doing. You, you know, you're providing real estate in, in that context um, where tenants want to be there. And if they are good tenants and, and sort of, a tenant has a, a bit of a bad moment. Actually, you want to you want to work with that tenant because at the end of the day, they are uh, human and, and they you know they will will come good at, at some point at some point you hope. So for us, it's it's definitely about the quality of the service, whether you're institutional or a mum dad investor, like we said, and then allowing for some of that to be a a, a bad debt like any other business. Yeah, and um, I know kind of again on the point of different markets um, having, having different issues. And this kind of goes back to the long-term income scenario. I know people think of, of residential and six-month tenancies. Well, that's not very long-term. But again, over in, I think it's, I think it's Germany, and I know some other, other European countries, tenancies are, are far, far longer. How do you think that makes a difference to the overall market that, that you're in? Yeah, no, agreed. And you're right, you know, in Germany, I think the average tenure of lease is sort of eight to 10 years. Um, and some other nuances, you know, in Germany, you usually provide your own kitchen, you know, whereas in the UK, obviously, the kitchen is ready there for you. So, you know, it's quite interesting, some of the first assets I, I walked into in Germany many years ago, you know, and you see no kitchen there, you're like, where's, where's the kitchen? Oh, the tenant will bring that. Really? So, you know, that's why sometimes they, they stay longer. You know, yep. they are more um, accustomed to renting. Uh, you know, so the families will go through the, the natural evolution from a one bed to a two bed to a three bed, you know, in the same block of apartments so that they're more than happy doing that. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, it, the, the, the tenure is, is an interesting area because that's what then deems the income to be more risky because of six month tenancies in the UK as, a, as an example. But as, as many sort of... Uh, people more intelligent than I will tell you that the law of masses and, and sort of the volume of, of leases mean well actually even though it's six months each one you know your average tenure is not six months 
and the actual churn on some of these properties that we underwrite in, in Europe is sort of, you know, sometimes down to as low as 5-10%. So that means basically <clears throat> if you had a block of 100, 5 to 10 of those uh, units are being released each year. And you actually want an active churn and an active uh, <laughs> it allows you to sort of get market rents. Yeah, exactly. What we've seen in the, in the COVID world is actually that level of, of churn has, has dropped and people are being more sticky and not wanting to, to, to move as, as much. Um, so, yeah, in, as I say, in each one of these markets, it's, it's just about knowing your, uh, the macro environment, but then the sort of the, the micro story of that part of that city, that street of that city and sometimes in, in residential, and then what property strategy fits that, that street and what adds to the community in the long term, whether that is age-appropriate living, student, co-living, multifamily, you know, you add into that society long-term, that's the key bit to it. And we are big users of data intelligence to provide that intelligence to us, to allow us to make better investment decisions. And, and part of that data is all around, you know, the length of tenure and the rental demand, et cetera, how long the, the, the property's been on the market, all of this, you know, how many one beds, age of the, the, the vicinity, you know, it all comes into uh, you know, a, a big melting pot that allows you to make a, a decision. Interesting. So I know you kind of touched on the six-month tenancy and having 5 to 10% turnover. Again, like it's, it's, I suppose it's comparing it to other asset classes and when you're looking at maybe some commercial leases, they might be you know, 5, 10, 15 years. But then at the end of that tenancy, you could have a year-long void while you're trying to fill it and, and, and look for a new tenant. So although there is a bit more churn in residential, it's, uh, it's about kind of what, what the total returns are, I guess, over, over, the, over the period. Exactly. So, you know, exactly that point. Not only do you have potentially a long tenure in, in office, it's, it's the capex as well. So yeah. you, you might have, you know, um, very little to pay during that 10, 15 years. But then when you, you get to this sort of, end of that process you've got a big lump of capex to put in to refurb the office to, to do the communal areas to do the reception to make it appealing for the next uh, tenant to, to, to come in or even to keep the current tenant there you might have to give a rent free period for example well you know in residential demand means that um, you know for example even in covid we were taking ownership of a new development in copenhagen well we couldn't physically do viewings but we did everything virtual virtual tour online bookings and we still leased up in line with our business plan during the pandemic well that is because there's a lack of stock and there's huge demand for that type of product in that region mm -hmm. um you know which you, you get in offices as well obviously but not not uh, not at all times and when the demand is is usually off it's off across offices, you know, you, you, it's not sort of quite uh, stable like in residential. Mm. And I, I know you mentioned before with the length of tenancies, that's going to, obviously, I think you kind of, you touched on it really, that's going to differ depending on the product. So where you might have uh, co-living, the average stay is, is going to be far shorter than someone, than a family who are renting a three-bed house with a garden. Um, yeah. So again, it's, you know, you know the whole senior space, you know, there's people classify senior as, you know, your, your nursing homes. Well, actually, the nursing homes is arguably your, you know, your later stages of life where the average tenure is probably two years yeah. in the age appropriate living, which we are going into this huge demographic, you know, sort of 
pothole, if you like, where there's just not enough product for it. You know, the average tenure is their tenures. You know, so again, you know, just knowing those um, those sub markets and the actual terminology around some of these uh, uh, themes is is key to understanding what what drives the, the returns. Absolutely. And so, kind of sticking on the subject of, of, of that and some of the data you look at. So, what else do you look for when deciding whether or not to invest in a particular residential market or a new market? Yeah, so we, we look at it um, in, in three stages, really. So you, you top-down macro uh, view is, uh, as I mentioned, those sort of four areas of the city. You know, what is the characteristics of this city or this area generally from a, a demographic point of view? Urbanization, gentrification, you know, how has this city evolved over time? Where are people wanting to live? You know, is it southwest London? Is it north London? You know, is it east London? You know, where, where are the younger generation going? Uh, where are the older generation going? Um, where are the, the sort of um, people who live in there? You know, what are they paying at the moment? What is their sort of uh, range of income that they can afford to, to pay? And then once you figure out that sort of general view of the city, you then go into the micro view of it to say, well, actually, we've identified these four postcodes. You know, is it these three streets? This street, you know, is it the one that's near the bus stop? Is this school seen as a, as a positive amenity to this location? Or is it seen as a negative? And depending on who you speak to, and, and demographics and age will, will form a part of that, arguably one will be a positive, one will be a negative. In other areas, such as a, a jail or a community centre, it's all pretty much standard as a, as a negative. Um, you know, is a bus stop positive? Is a supermarket a positive? You know, all of this is put into that microanalysis of the area. And then we, we match the relevant property strategy to those, uh, those different types of, uh, of analysis. So you look for the opportunity and then you, you create the product for that opportunity. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, it can go both ways and we can lead with a bottom up where a deal transaction lands on our, on our plate and it's like, right, this is an opportunity to buy. And then we do the research and find out, wow, okay, yeah, this just happens to be great. We haven't designed this product. We haven't bought this product market, but it fits what exactly this community needs. But in the main, you know, we will be much more proactive because ultimately we're trying to provide solutions to, to clients, uh, pension funds across the world and, and solutions to their, their needs so how do you provide a solution well you find a problem and some pain and then figure out actually I can we can help solve this and this might be interesting to them you know and that's very much what we try to do with with our residential strategy. In terms of looking at some of the, those kind of metrics and, and characteristics of, of cities and, and products do you think the characteristics of property investment should be the same or do you think that investors need to look at direct and indirect investments differently so for example if someone was interested in putting money into your fund should would they be looking at it differently and how, how would or how would you look at it if you were on either side of that fence yeah so via direct you mean direct into real estate versus indirect via a manager who then invests themselves into real estate well i suppose uh, there's two questions, I guess. That would be one of them. And then the second would be someone investing in their own deals versus putting it, investing into, say, Patrizio, which is yeah. a fund that goes into and, uh, various others. So yeah. kind of the characteristics of what they're looking for would might change. So, so it's sort of a, a difficult question. 
question to answer in sort of a concise way because it, it really depends on you know how much their allocation is to their portfolio of, of single deals if you like if they can allocate enough money to get diversity themselves um, and sort of spread the risk well that might work for certain institutions pension funds or individuals to do that you know you need to be very hands-on and you need to commit to that sector that area and and know the detail of, of what I've been talking about um, so it's very much a property risk and you know your own operational risk on the other side you know investing with a manager whether that's Patricia or, or anyone else you know you then uh, are looking at more of a, a manager risk versus a property risk ultimately yeah. you're betting on the manager uh, making the right decisions over and above what you would have done and making higher returns or, or taking less risk for the same returns than, than you would have done. And um, you know, for different investors at different points in their cycles, then different options work. Uh, you know, I think the, 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 the institutional market is very much going down a, a barbell strategy where yep. you have some niche players who provide this high expertise uh, of, of certain sectors and certain locations and then you have your big uh, monster managers who you know have scale and brand awareness around the globe of which we're, we're in that bucket um, that doesn't mean we can't go niche and we can't find the best ideas you know we definitely can do that but we are providing a an allocation solution for some of these pension funds so we're not just providing uh, you know southwest residential uh, you know, we are providing pan-European residential, so that allows them to diversify in a greater way. Uh, we're also providing pan-European balanced, so, you know, office, retail, logistics as a, as a strategy. We're also providing value-add and higher returning strategies, both in residential and the balanced sector. So we are what is classified much more as a, as a one-stop shop for them, and uh, the, the trend from institutional investors definitely is less managers, but bigger investments with those managers. So, so scaling those managers. Yeah, and, and making, I suppose, taking the effort and skill set to be a much smaller percentage of the, of, of the rent roll or percentage of the capital, really, than, than what it would be, I suppose, with someone that's directly doing it themselves because they're, they're having to put all that, I suppose, sweat equity in. Yeah, but there's, there's that angle that you can get broader diversity and be a smaller part of a bigger pie, definitely. But then there's the, you know, the, the angle that in the UK at the moment, we're seeing a lot of UK pension funds clubbing together and forming pools. Uh, and there's basically eight major pools being formed across the UK who, as opposed to having many, many underlying pension funds for each local authority, they are now pooling the money together to say, right, let's go as, you know, the, the central pool or the northern pool or wherever it may be, and that gives us buying power. So yeah. when we go and knock on the door of any of the big global managers, well, we can then stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the big Dutch pension funds or the Middle East sovereign wealth funds. And as a result, we can, if we give you more equity, we can demand or request, uh, you know, whether we give it or not is, is, is seen. But, you know, we can, we can request, uh, you know, lower fees as a result. So they can then get that scale and efficiencies as, as a result of it as well. That's really fascinating. So if we've got some, uh, I don't know, aspiring landlords and developers out there 
that or or maybe that have 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 been past that phase and are a bit tired now and have a, have a niche in co living and are thinking right, I want to get rid of it. Is, the, is rock, the Rodcast <laughs> Fund, you know, there it is. It, it was, it's developed here. <laughs> exactly. So, what do you? Um, what are your thoughts then on the UK real estate market over the next sort of five years? If, if, I, if I make it a little bit more specific and we stick to residential, I suppose, what, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? <clears throat> so, you know, the, the, the UK market generally has been an interesting one for us in the last, you know, we're obviously big supporters of it. You know, we've got significant amounts of money of ours invested and, and pension fund money invested in the UK. So we're, we're a good sized player here. Interestingly, over the last 12 months since COVID, you know, there and the, the sort of Pound volatility and drop in the pound has, has provided some uh, some respite, but a lot of investors have basically expected blood on the streets. You know, real sort of distress selling, like back in the global financial crisis. So there's been lots of investors saying, "Yeah, okay, I'll have a look at the UK, but I want you know high returns and I want uh, you know to be compensated for my risk." You know, Brexit sort of comes and goes. It seems like one moment investors don't care about it at all. And they're bored with hearing about it, and then the next moment, it's an issue, and they, they need to be um, they need to be compensated for that that perceived risk as as well. So, in in the residential space, I think it's quite an interesting one. We are seeing some developers who maybe have sort of tried to land bank too much, and and sort of are now overexposed a little bit, and want to to, to draw back some cash. So we are seeing some deals uh, be offered to us um, from from sort of land banks. Um, and then we're also seeing some block sales if you are able to be uh, you know, a big equity investor where you, you can work in partnership with some developers to say, okay, uh, you know, you've got a, a big scheme here that's been in planning for many, many years. Now it's come to market, probably not the right time for you. Well, let's help you de-risk it and let's buy one of your blocks and take 250 units off your hands day one. And then it allows you some some uh, leeway to, to to sell individually some of the other units to to owner occupiers o- over time. Um, so you know we're we're monitoring all aspects of, of the market really, and we think uh, the UK relative relative to the rest of Europe is, is an interesting place to be right now. Yeah, I'm interesting you said that about developers and things like that. I know if we look at London, for example, especially Prime and Inner London, looking at sort of some data today, this has been the longest London recession of prices on record. It's been 75 months since 2014 the, the, where prices peaked. That's long, that's I think triple what it was in 2008, um, which is quite, I just found quite interesting. Yeah, some good stats. You know, and, and why is that? It's, it's again supply demand. So, you know, even before COVID, even before those 70 months that you mentioned there of, of sort of the, the drop in pricing, you, know, you could tell along the terms, you know, the, the volume of whatever it's thousand pound a square foot flats that were being built, there wasn't, you know, sort of enough demand for, for that. The demand is below that, you know, either five to a thousand square foot, which you just, you know, can't, can't deliver on a, a riverside frontage. So I think, you know, the high end of that London market was, looking oversupplied uh, you know a, a while ago and that's why in in London especially we've we focus wherever we can on that mid 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 segment of the market and do you think now with covid and the i suppose drop off of developments happening that's going to add to the supply issues of that mid market where we we're not going to have I, don't, I, don't, I can't remember what 
the government targets for a new new houses every year, but it never reaches it. But I mean, it's going to be less than half of what it would normally be because of the lack of actually building now. Do you, I'm guessing that's obviously going to add to the whole supply issue. Yeah, so it probably will because it's a, this opportunity is an interesting one for us because the reason why some of those developers are struggling is because either they've over overstretched or they can't get the finance. Mm. You know, so the fact that they can't get the finance means they won't develop, and that's going to actually lead to a, to probably a slowdown in, in some of these homes being being produced. If you are a big name and you can get finance, well, it doesn't really affect you affect you too much. So it's probably some of the smaller developers that will will be more affected by by some of this than, than the larger ones. But you know, for for us who can pay all equity for sites and, and you know, it, it's it's development finance. Yes, helps, but it's not the only you know, only sort of uh, tool in our toolkit. You know, it, it's hopefully an opportunity as well. Well, I think I think in these kind of downturns, you see the people that can weather the storm are able to pick up massive sort of market share and, like we said before, pricing power to then buy up when the opportunities do present themselves. And I know you kind of talked about, oh, everyone was expecting blood on the streets, and you are now finding that developers maybe who are overexposed or have got a few uh, blocks going. These aren't sort of your homeowners selling. These are corporations or businesses that are selling either portfolios or their own stock really rather than sort of yeah what people I suppose might think back in sort of a, a bit in 2008 but more in, in, in I suppose the early 80s recession where it was a case of homeowners having to hand their keys back because they can they can sort of pay the mortgage so I think there's it's just important to make that differentiation no good. brilliant well I, I think that's that's about it isn't it I've, I've yeah, learned a huge amount. So thanks so much for coming on. Is there anything else you wanted to kind of say or you felt that was relevant in terms of what uh, Patricia is doing at the moment in UK or, or Europe? No, we're, we're active, you know, across um, uh, across all areas in in, in Europe, and um, hopefully uh, those who who weren't aware of us before are now um, aware. And like anything, when you're away, you start to see things uh, more regularly and, and hopefully we'll, we'll be in uh, more places and people will, will recognise us. Absolutely. So if anyone wants to know a bit more about Patricia, where's best for them to go? Yeah, uh, you know, happy to, to share my details uh, as, as well. And then, you know, our Patricia website, um, you know, is, is obviously a, a good place as, as, as well. And maybe we can provide a, a link to, to that on, on the podcast. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll definitely have some links there on, on the show notes. So thanks again, Alan. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. And uh, now our listeners will be uh, very thankful for you coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. Good chat to you. If you enjoy the broadcast, please don't forget to give us an iTunes review. There's a link in the show notes to do that. It just helps other listeners find our podcast. And if you're interested in what any of our guests do, please look into the show notes for their details. Also, if you're interested in the property businesses that I'm involved in or in my consultancy services, please do contact me via the email. You guessed it, it's in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss any new episodes as they come out. Thanks again for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you.